Many of us know someone, or perhaps have even lost someone, as a result of a heart attack. As with any major organ within the body, oxygenated blood flows through arteries to the heart to allow it to perform its major role as the major pump within the body. If any of these vessels, known as the coronary arteries, become blocked, it impedes oxygenated blood flow to the heart muscle, also known as the myocardium, and inhibits the muscle from contracting. This leads to a heart attack. Minutes mean myocardium, and this is a medical emergency. When a patient's life is in the balance, who is the one waiting to open up that vessel again to reperfuse the heart muscle? And what does that even mean? As trusted healthcare practitioners, we are in a position to help and assist some of the sickest patients on death's door. So, after that stressed call to triple zero, what comes next? Where does this patient who has had rounds of CPR and defibrillation head to for their final fight? Today, we talk to David, a cardiology advanced trainee within the New South Wales public health sector, who gives us some insight from triple zero to the cardiac catheterization laboratory. Your arteries, a system of tubes that transport blood around your body. Over time, the buildup of fatty material can damage and clog arteries, restricting the blood flow. This is known as atherosclerosis and can lead to heart attacks and strokes. There are several causes, including high cholesterol, which can clog up your arteries over time, high blood pressure, which can damage areas in your artery walls making it easier for fatty material to build up over time. And smoking, where chemicals in tobacco smoke can also damage arteries, leading to this fatty material buildup. If a fatty deposit breaks down or ruptures, a blood clot can form around it. This can block your artery. If this artery supplies blood to your heart muscle, it can cause a heart attack. Alrighty. Hey, Dave. Welcome to the virtual couch. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, and what is your role in healthcare? Yeah, great. It's great to be here. So my name is David. I'm one of the cardiology trainees at John Hunter Hospital. So I'm training to become a cardiologist, and that involves a few different things, but mostly what it involves is being on call for cardiology, dealing with urgent cardiac issues, uh, and that's three years of training before I become a cardiologist. So doing that at the moment, it's great fun. Oh, awesome. Now, it might be a little bit of a personal question, um, but why did you choose cardiology? Very good question. Um, There's nothing sensitive about that question for me. I mean, I always really liked the heart. So from when I was in medical school, the heart always really interested me. It always made a lot of sense to me. Uh, And the great thing about being a cardiologist is you get to do so many things. So it's so versatile. So you can see patients yourself in hospitals, see unwell patients, treat them. You can report imaging. So we report echoes, can report CT scans of the heart and cardiac MRIs. But you can also do so many procedures. So you can be in the cath lab and you can put in pacemakers. You can do coronary interventions, which is fixing up coronary arteries. There's just such a world of different things you can do in cardiology. And the fact that it was so versatile uh, made it really interesting. And I think that's why I did cardiology. 
Yeah. yeah, great. No typical day is the same, obviously. So you've mentioned there, and I'm going to push a little bit further. You mentioned echoes, so I'm going to come back mm. to that. But you also mentioned the cardiac catheterization lab. Um, and what sort of patients would we expect to see there or what procedures do you do there? You spoke to coronary intervention, so I'm just going to let you elaborate on that a bit further. Yeah, so the catheter laboratory is really a pivotal part of where we train and where we care for patients. So in particular, in terms of coronary intervention, which is a subspecialty of cardiology, what we really deal with is the arteries of the heart, as well as the valves of the heart. Those are the main two things that we can try and fix in the catheterization laboratory. Um, The first thing to say is, you know, the heart's just a muscle, it's a pump. And so every muscle needs its own blood supply. And sometimes you can have heart attacks, which is an acute blockage in the blood supply, supplying the heart muscle with blood and that can be an emergency and so what we do in the catheterization lab day in and day out is we go in through uh, the wrist or the groin via a small puncture go up the artery which feeds into the heart and from there we can have a look at the arteries of the heart and potentially open up blocked arteries with balloons and stents if needed yeah yeah, great. So that's such a, um, what's an amazing service, really. So can you do this in an acute setting and sort of maybe if there's chronic issues with these patients? Yeah, definitely. So certainly the main benefit of coronary intervention, the most bang for buck is in the acute setting. So if yeah. someone has plaque, which is calcium in the arteries, and if it pops open, it's sort of like a pimple inside the wall of the heart arteries. And so if it pops and it forms a clot and it acutely blocks blood flow, that can be a serious and life-threatening situation. And so really in those situations, we identify patients pretty quickly and try and get them into the catheterization lab pretty early to open up the blocked artery if it is blocked. On the other side of things, there is a more uh, chronic role for opening up blocked arteries So blockages in arteries can happen really quickly, and that's the sort of urgent situation. But blockages in arteries can be the slow and gradual buildup of calcium over years and decades. And in that sort of situation, actually, there isn't really any urgency to doing an angiogram. And the main benefit of an angiogram, mostly in patients who don't have weak heart muscle um, because of it, the benefits is mainly for symptoms. So some patients with these blockages develop chest pain when they exert themselves or breathlessness when they exert themselves. And so we can potentially offer stenting, ballooning, opening up of the arteries in order to improve symptoms. Yeah, okay. Now, you mentioned this is coronary artery intervention. So I just wanted to quickly mention, is this the gold standard when we're looking and are trying to have a look at those coronary arteries or the the blood vessels that supply the heart muscle? Yeah, definitely. So it is a good question. Ultimately, the 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 quick answer is yes, it is the gold standard. So yeah. there are various non-invasive tests that we can do to have a look at the coronary arteries, and they include functional assessments where we look at ultrasound scan of the heart muscle. Yeah. And in that situation, we're not actually looking at the arteries. We're just looking for the effects of blockages on a weak heart pump, for example. Yeah. There are also other non-invasive investigations like a CT coronary angiogram where we do a CT scan of your heart to look for blockages in the heart arteries. But ultimately, at the end of the day, that test, the CT scan, it's very uh, uh, 
it's very careful of what you say here, Dave. I'm a CT radiographer. Yes, <laughs> no, how do I say this? No, no, <laughs> you're right. Um, it's very specific for coronary artery disease, as in if you have calcium on the CT scan, there's definitely coronary artery disease. However, most times this can be managed medically. Yeah. The problem is that it often can um, overdiagnose coronary artery disease. And often when something looks severe on the CT scan, it actually will be mild to moderate on a coronary angiogram. And that's why if we're worried about someone, we will refer someone generally to a coronary angiogram after because it is the gold standard. Yeah. yeah, okay. Now, I'm just going to say here, obviously, not all heroes wear capes. Some of them wear scrubs, scrub hats, booties, gowns, gloves, <laughs> the <laughs> kit and caboodle. Um, but when these procedures take place in the cardiac catheterization lab, we know the importance as, uh, as well of working as a multidisciplinary team. And But who else would a cardiologist find themselves working alongside in this environment? Yeah, so providing a cath lab service is a huge undertaking. So there's a huge amount of people in the background that provide support and enable things to run smoothly. So in the actual catheterization lab doing the procedures, you definitely will have at least a few scrub nurses who are cardiac specialists uh, in nursing who assist with the procedures and can scout. And they're very, very useful because if things hit the fan, they're really, really good at providing advanced life support Uh, helping uh, patients who are really unwell. But in addition to that, in the uh, control room, which is just outside of the catheterization laboratory, we have a radiographer who uh, obviously has a pivotal role in radiation safety as well as assisting with radiation equipment and also the cardiac technician who assesses uh, both the blood pressure as well as the heart rate and all of the vitals of the patient to ensure that we all can provide um, uh, the best care But, you know, even apart from that, you know, there's a huge amount of work that goes on behind the scenes. You have uh, wardies who provide care to patients back and forth from the uh, catheterization laboratory. You have nurse unit managers who make sure things run smoothly. You have administration staff who ensure that patients are booked for procedures and that, you know, everything's in stock. So it's an absolutely huge undertaking. Yeah, I think um, sometimes students don't see what happens in the background and particularly patients have no idea how many people contribute to that, you know, patient-centred care approach. So it's nice to hear. I want to know as well, are patients awake or are they asleep during this procedure? Yeah, so it depends on the patient, but for the vast majority of patients and for the vast majority of procedures, often all we do is provide light sedation. And so generally with these non-invasive procedures where we go in through the wrist or the groin with sort of a keyhole procedure into the arteries, after the local anaesthetic, things go really quite smoothly and the majority of patients really fly through with not much discomfort. Of course, there are exceptions to the rule, but generally we provide a bit of intravenous light sedation and that gets the majority of people through. Yeah, yeah perfect. So I'm just going to touch here as well. And we've spoken about, you know, we have a radial or maybe a femoral groin approach where we puncture the artery and follow back to the heart. Um, so it's minimally invasive, but can you outline a basic procedure from when the patient comes and arrives to the cardiac cath lab to, to maybe the end and what the end goal would be? Yeah, definitely. So uh, it does depend on the uh, specific case, but say for a diagnostic angiography, which is probably the majority of what we do, basically uh, having a look at the arteries for diagnostic purposes. The process is firstly, they are consented for the procedure prior to arriving in catheterization laboratory. 
that's really essential because they need to understand that every procedure has risks. And even though the vast majority of the time things go really smoothly, things can go really badly a small proportion of the time. So, Dave, can who can sense them? Sorry, I'm just going to pause yeah, you yeah. there. Who can sense so them? It's, it's the cardiologist or the cardiac trainee. So it will yeah. be the doctor who can sense the patient and informs them of the risks. Perfect. The real challenge, of course, is that, you know, the consent is individual to the patient and to the procedure itself. And so it does rely on the doctor's understanding of the patient in order to give an adequate you know, explanation of risks. Yeah. So, you know, serious risks can include things like heart attacks, strokes, major bleeding and death probably happens um, not commonly, uh, but it certainly is a complication. And so all of those are really important that the patients are aware of before we do the procedure. Yeah. Um, after the patient comes into the lab, then they will be transferred from their bed onto their catheterization table and, uh, then the nurses get to work and they have a huge job preparing the patient, getting all the equipment ready, which takes a fair amount of time. Yep. And then once all that's ready, then we do a timeout. And what a timeout is, is that everyone uh, comes together next to the patient and ensures that we have the right patient, that they have consented to the procedure, that they are agreeable to go ahead and there's no uh, last-minute problems and making sure the allergies are all okay. And so after the timeout's done, then the actual procedure can start. Yep. And so for a usual diagnostic angiogram, we use uh, local anaesthetic like lignocaine in the wrist and yep. subsequently gain access with a small needle. Uh, everything we do is uh, we kind of use a cell dinger technique, which you haven't heard of soon, uh, which you if, if you haven't heard of before, you'll hear about it soon. Yep. But basically through the little needle, we pass a very thin wire and then we remove the needle and over the wire, we put a sheath into the artery. And it's through that sheath in the right radial artery uh, that we can pass our catheters and wires up into the aorta to take pictures of the heart arteries. Um, after we take the pictures, of course, uh, the, the process can be very easy or very challenging. And of course, we might move to doing uh, interventions such as opening balloons inside the arteries or opening stents inside the arteries. But after all that's finished, um, we uh, generally remove the sheath, uh, provide pressure on the area with uh, generally a pressure band or manual pressure over the puncture site. And then after that, we transfer the patient back onto the bed and, and move them to recovery. And it's actually probably most important to know that most of the time for the patient is actually spent before and after the procedure. The procedure is actually a relatively short space of time in recovery, the nurses will do lots of observations, will monitor the puncture sites and ensure the patient is stable prior to them going back to the ward or being discharged home. So yeah. it really is, you know, a long process which involves many different steps. Which is probably something really important to be mindful of from a patient perspective and making sure that the patient's always comfortable and making sure that we communicate effectively and they're not confused the whole way, I suppose. Definitely. Um, now, you spoke there about the imaging that we do. So when we're looking at the coronary vessels, we use iodine, am I correct, to look at? Correct. Yeah. So obviously, that's something that we would talk within the consent process to make sure there's no allergies. Um, they've not had prior reaction to an iodine-based allergy. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a fair comment. So uh, I, I guess the thing to note is obviously not all allergies made the same. There's some allergy that was, you know, I had an allergic reaction in 1980 to some contrast. What was your reaction? Oh, I, I felt nauseous and unwell. Yeah. And so obviously, you know, then the other grade, uh, the other side of things is anaphylaxis. And, you know, in those situations, 
we'd think very, very carefully or not do the procedure, of course. But certainly um, allergy and specifically as well renal function are the two really big things that we worry about before we give iodine-related contrast. Yeah. And certainly, you know, there are some things we can do to reduce the risk of allergy. Um, so taking a patient to the catheterization lab really always is a matter of risks and benefits. So if someone's having a heart attack um, in the acute setting, it is quite different to someone who's having a diagnostic angiogram for possible coronary artery disease. Yeah, um, and that's where there would just be some <clears throat> sort of narrowing to that coronary vessel, not necessarily a complete blockage. Is Definitely. So, so yeah, and narrowing to the vessel and sometimes uh, there can be a complete blockage that's developed over decades. And yep. in those situations, often uh, there are bypasses that the heart produces by itself. So the arteries that supply the different muscles of the heart will actually form conduits or bypasses to supply that area of the heart with blood. And so in those sorts of situations, certainly it's not not an uh, acute life-threatening situations when they've been building up over years and decades. a period of time. Yeah, yeah, of course. The heart really is a, a magical pump, isn't it? But you spoke about heart attacks. Now, I remember back to being a school kid and I thought heart attacks and strokes were the same thing. Whew, mm. Look at me now, I'm a radiographer. <laughs> but can you just outline just briefly the difference between a heart attack and a cardiac arrest? Yeah, sure. So firstly, uh, the thing to say about a cardiac arrest, it is any situation where the patient does not have a pulse or a a palpable uh, pulse or a blood pressure. So in those situations, basically, there is no output from the heart. And that makes people die pretty quickly. It takes about five, five minutes before really your brain really starts to struggle. If not, you you become brain dead. So a cardiac arrest is basically an umbrella term for a whole variety of different diseases that lead to the same end result, which is no output from the heart. Sometimes that can be a problem like a heart attack, but also there are many other problems that can cause no output from the heart that aren't heart attacks. And so they include things like pulmonary embolism, a clot, Uh, that prevents any blood flow going through your pulmonary circulation. So if you have none of that, you don't have any cardiac output. Another thing that can do it is an abnormal heart rhythm. So if you go into ventricular fibrillation, which is an abnormal electrical circuit in the lower chamber of the heart, that can result in no cardiac output. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, A heart attack, on the other hand, as we said before, your heart's a pump, it's a muscle. And a heart attack is an acute blockage in the blood supply to the heart muscle. Yeah. Uh, And that can also lead to a a cardiac arrest or, you know, death. But uh, most of the time uh, we, we, we get our patients through. Yeah. Beautiful. I think that's really nice to just outline and avoid any sort of confusion there. Now, when you say you need to have medical um, intervention and maybe you might look to use balloons, which you mentioned before, and stents, um, how do you go about this? What's the process of actually putting the stent into the coronary artery? And does this mean that our patients might go off when they go through airport security? (laughs) Very good question. Everyone goes off. That's actually the number one reason. That uh, alarms go off in airport security. <laughs> no, thankfully they don't beep and they're not radioactive, which is good. The Basically the process is that when we get the catheters to the mouth of the arteries in the heart, 
we can actually pass, pass very thin and gentle wires through those catheters actually into the heart arteries. So if you imagine you have a pipe and within the pipe you have a wire that's passed through in the middle of it, you can go past narrowings and potentially uh, uh, track equipment along the wire in order to get it into the arteries themselves. Yeah. So after you have the wire inside the arteries, you can pass balloons, which are deflated initially, but subsequently when you get them to where you want, you can inflate the balloons yeah. in order to uh, improve the blood flow, in order to widen the artery. And then also, in addition, you can actually deliver deflated stents, which again are loaded onto a balloon. And then the balloon inflates, delivers the stent on the vessel wall, and the balloon can deflate, leaving the stent opposed to the vessel wall. So then the stent is left in situ. Correct. So the stent stays inside, the metal stays inside the patient forever. Yeah. Yep. And then that is what you hope to then open full blood flow again to that vessel? Correct, correct. The idea is that you open the blood vessel to improve the blood flow to the um, uh, to the area of the heart distal to that blockage. Yeah, further away. Beautiful. Um, now, I've got another question here. We've all heard of broken heart syndrome, but is it really a thing? And, and what is the medical terminology of it? What does it mean? Yeah, yeah. So broken heart syndrome is extremely common. We see so much of this. Uh, so it's also called Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. Uh, Takotsubo in Japanese actually means uh, octopus pot. And so the Japanese actually used pots to catch octopus. And it was initially described because the heart actually looks like an octopus pot, hence why they call it Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. That literal. So, yeah, it's quite literal. So basically... Uh, with a broken heart syndrome or a Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, for all intents and purposes, it looks like a heart attack. Patients often have symptoms suggestive of a heart attack. They have changes on the ECG, which is a heart electrical trace that are suggestive of a heart attack. They often have blood enzymes, which demonstrate heart strain. And so we often rush these people to the cath lab to make sure they don't have a blocked artery. However, what we find is that the arteries are pretty normal. There is no blockage to any of the arteries. And when we look at the heart muscle, we find there is weakness at the top of the heart that looks like an octopus, uh, an octopus pot. Uh, yeah, it wow. frequently, yeah, frequently associates with physical and emotional stress. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it looks exactly the same. But thankfully, if you put them on medications, the vast majority of patients do really well. So within three months, most of the time, the heart recovers back to normal. So if it, if it does depend on or it can come down to lifestyle stress, it literally is the definition of a broken heart. It kind of is. It kind of is. And so originally um, when we first described this, it happened a lot in, in people who had really significant emotional stress. So the classic story is a fight with a partner. Uh, or, or um, some sort of, you know, relationship breakdown. And in that setting, actually, a lot of people do develop the um, broken heart syndrome. 
So make love, don't fight is what we're taking out of this. We're broken exactly. Heart syndrome day. Exactly. Um, now, finally, I won't keep you too much longer, but um, obviously in some instances, patients may deteriorate on the table um, and CPR or additional drugs, like you mentioned, the nurses are busy working around and our patients um, more often than not, are only mildly sedated. Um, the main aim is to correct that arterial blood supply. So what happens in these situations when our patient might start to deteriorate? So the first thing to know, so obviously uh, there's a huge team involved in resuscitating an unwell patient. At the end of the day, the first thing to do that's quite simple is to perform a primary survey. And that's something that I'm sure uh, um, the students will learn about pretty soon if they haven't already. Yeah. But it's a stepwise assessment of the vital functions that every person needs. So it's A, B, C, D, E. And I'm sure you've all heard of that. Yeah. A, airway. If you, you know, don't have an airway, things don't go well. B, your breathing, your oxygen saturations. C, your circulation and your blood pressure. And D, your disability. So making sure they don't have a stroke. Yep. Having said that, you work through that pretty quickly. I mean, within a few seconds, you generally know what's going on. And so the common problems that can happen are, firstly, an abnormal heart rhythm. So in patients who have heart attacks or when we frolic around the heart arteries and inside the heart, we can actually induce nasty rhythms that can potentially be life-threatening. And in those situations, sometimes providing a shock through pads that are on the patient's chest can get them out of trouble pretty quickly. Yeah. On the other hand, there are various other potential causes apart from the heart that could also go wrong. And that's why it is important, I guess, always to keep in mind to do the basics properly. Uh, and we're always taught to, to you know, perform a primary survey uh, when a patient gets unwell. Yeah, it's um, it sounds like an amazing service that cardiology is, and there's so, it's so multifaceted. Like you can work with so many different people, but like you said, a day in the life of Dave can vary so much as a cardiologist yourself. Um, and also that the cardiac cath lab can see such deteriorating patients, and you can have to think so agilely on your feet. So thanks so much for joining us, Dave. It's been great insight to a day in the life of Dave, but also insight into the various areas that medical radiation practitioners can find themselves in. No, happy to help. Um, happy to chat again if you want. Yeah. Oh, you're the best. Thanks so much. <laughs> no, happy to help. Great. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Professional Button Pushers, but there are plenty more where this came from. Tune in on Spotify or Anchor FM to listen to any more as I, Tani Nelson, talk to real industry professionals. Until next time. Make safe choices. Thank you.